You're listening to a recorded teaching from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week five. Today's teaching is on Exodus 7, 1 through 9, 7. Thanks for joining us. Hello, ladies. I am so sorry that we can't be together, but I hope you've grabbed something hot to drink and found a comfy spot and you're ready to go. This lesson was planned to use with the PowerPoint, which is posted on the resource list. If you're not following on my slides, you can pause the audio and look up verses in a Bible, but you will want to look at them. This lesson is really the first part of one complete unit. You need to look at chapters 7 through 11 as a whole and trace themes and progress through the whole section. But we broke it into two parts because it's too much for one week. So some of what I'll say reaches into next week's section. Some of what Julie says next time will reach back into this section. So keep looking for progression, for intensification, for repetitive patterns, for main themes. The first section in our text, chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, introduces most of the main themes for the lesson. Did you notice the real change in pace? From here until chapter 15, every major section starts with, The Lord said to Moses. And repeatedly Moses thunders to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. God is no longer the silent observer that we saw in the beginning. He is constantly speaking. And not just speaking, but repeatedly breaking into the everyday life of the nation with one supernatural event after another. Can you think of a more intense, spectacular period of biblical history? Even when Jesus was on earth, most of his miracles were personal and local, not large and earth-shattering, although his life and death were ultimately much more significant. Why the intensity here? God is forging a nation out of a people group forging an unshakable national identity. Remember in chapter 1 how Jacob's family first began to be called a people? Now that people group is being welded into a nation. That's different from just a people group. Think, what are the basic requirements for a nation? You need people, you need land belonging to them, and you need a law or government. You need people, land, and law. We have the people. They will now head out for the land. And along the way, God will give them the law. The next theme you see is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in verse 3. I will talk about that later, so put that on hold for now. Verses 3 and 4 have two important phrases, signs and wonders and great acts of judgment. In our Christian setting, we call these the ten plagues. But actually, the Bible uses plague only in chapter 9 to describe the cattle disease. If they're not plagues, what are they? The words most commonly used within these chapter, 13 times, describe a strike or a blow from God. The Jews actually call these the ten strikes. That reflects God's words in verse 4 here, that he will exercise great acts of judgment on Egypt. But these strikes are more than simply judgment. In the rest of the Old Testament, 
The most common descriptor used is the one in verse 3, signs and wonders. That phrase occurs 10 times elsewhere in various books. It's better than strikes because it encompasses more of God's purpose. You've been underlining the phrase that he or they will know or shall know. Julie will talk about that next. But let me say here that God repeatedly states his overarching purpose, that the Egyptians will know who God is and the Israelites will know who God is. Yes, he's judging Egypt, but these things are also signs pointing to who God is, wonders that show his power and sovereignty. We use the word plagues in your workbook because that's familiar, but in this lesson I'm going to use the word signs instead to reinforce the idea that these are a display of God's character as well as judgment on Egypt. Moving on, 7, 8 to 13. Moses and Aaron have an audience with Pharaoh. Who are these men described as wise men, sorcerers, magicians who practice secret arts? Do you know of a book or movie that shows a sorcerer poring over the books of spells in his library? Throughout the centuries, practitioners of secret arts have collected writings or manuscripts that they use. Do you remember in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, Christians who used to practice sorcery burned their scrolls of magic. Egyptian temples had libraries filled with papyrus scrolls containing descriptions of rituals and ceremonies and curses. In the PowerPoint, I have a picture of a box used for storing papyrus magic scrolls. It actually came from an ancient Egyptian temple. Priests in those temples studied the scrolls and were proficient in all kinds of occult arts. Undoubtedly, the men who came at Pharaoh's beckoning were the most skilled in the kingdom. Here's a trivia question if you like a challenge. Two of the sorcerers in this Exodus encounter are mentioned by name in the New Testament. Can you find where? And I'm not telling you today. So what are the secret arts described here? True power or sleight of hand? I'd say a combination of both. They probably conjured up all the occult power they could manage, then added as much deception and illusion as they could to look even more powerful. We don't know how it actually worked. Some commentators mention a snake charmer's trick of pressing the snake's neck right behind the head to cause it to go rigid and look like a stick. Or were the snakes controlled by the same kind of occult power that was used to call frogs up out of the Nile later? And what about the blood? The most important thing is clear in the text, though. When it mentions the sorcerers, they were soundly defeated by God's power. There are two extremes we need to avoid regarding occult power. One is to deny that there's any real power there, nothing but illusion. The other extreme is to believe that evil power can threaten God or even come close to him. Any power the sorcerers had was insignificant compared to God's power. Look at 819. When the sorcerers couldn't duplicate Moses creating gnats, they said, this is the finger of God. That phrase, the finger of God, is only used three other times in the Bible. Twice the Old Testament says that the tablets of the Ten Commandments were inscribed by the finger of God. The only other use of finger of God is a New Testament allusion to this Exodus event. Anyone recognize it? Jesus said it. Luke eleven twenty. Jesus was accused of using demonic power to cast out demons. He soundly denied it, and he added, 
But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We've been looking for ways that Moses is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Well, Jesus himself gives us this one. Jews who knew their Old Testament history would catch the finger of God reference to Moses and the sorcerers. As I said earlier, the ministry of Jesus was not as spectacular as Moses, but Jesus wanted his listeners to realize that something as powerful as Moses was taking place. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Both Moses and Jesus were involved in power encounters with evil as they ushered in a new stage of God's work. The finger of God through Moses defeated the idols and sorcerers of Egypt to set the Israelites free from slavery. Jesus as Messiah not only cast out demons through that same finger of God, but he crushed Satan's head to provide ultimate deliverance. I have just a few comments on the first five signs. For the first sign, God said to Moses in chapter 7, verse 20, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Remember what I said back in chapter 2 when Pharaoh's daughter found baby Moses at the riverbank? This is probably the same thing going on, a morning ceremony or ritual at river's edge. So picture this. Pharaoh went down to the river that morning. Moses was waiting for him. Before Pharaoh could get down to the water to perform his ritual, Moses stopped him, accused him of disobeying God, and turned the water to blood right in front of him. Pretty off-putting, right? I assume that Pharaoh skipped his river ceremony that day. For the second sign, Moses warned Pharaoh with, Let my people go, and if you refuse. But Pharaoh refused. When the frogs became unbearable, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron back and said he'd let the people go if the frogs were banished. Moses even had Pharaoh pick the exact time just to prove how powerful God is. I can't imagine why Pharaoh said tomorrow. I would have said right now. But Pharaoh reneged on his promise, and that's a behavior he will repeat. The third sign, gnats. In most of the signs, God used natural elements already known to the Egyptians. That leads some people to say that these signs were just unusual events in nature that people attributed to God. But if you believe the Bible is true and inspired, the story as written leaves no room for that interpretation. The fourth sign is translated as swarms of flies in most English versions, but we aren't really sure of the translation. It's mentioned in Psalm 78 verse 45. Asaph says, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. So we conclude that these were blood-sucking insects. God even kept Goshen free of flies in order to make his point clear. That's a pattern he will repeat. If you back up to verse 42 in this psalm, you see that it's one of the places these events are referred to as signs and marvels. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. The last sign in this lesson was the plague on livestock. Here again, God spared the Israelite livestock to make his point very clear. But Pharaoh's heart, as with every previous sign, was hardened against the work of God. So what do we do with that repeated phrase about Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Let's start with the textual evidence. In this 
first half of Exodus, Pharaoh's hardening is predicted by God twice, chapters 4 and 7. It's mentioned at the beginning of two of the signs and at the end of all ten. Three different Hebrew words are all translated here as verbs or adjectives for hard or hardened, so we lose the nuances in English. It would especially help to look at the PowerPoint here. You don't need to remember these words. Just listen and try to get a sense of the range of meaning they cover. The first word is hazak, H-A-Z-A-Q. That's how my source spelled it, but you might see various spellings. Hazak is the most common word used for Pharaoh. I counted it 11 times. It means to stiffen or strengthen, to make resolute or determined. It's not in itself a moral quality or a lack of compassion. You could be strengthened in a good resolve, although that wasn't the case with Pharaoh. So Hazak is stiffen or strengthen. The second word, kasa, Q-A-S-A, is only used once. It means to be hard, and it's negative. The third word is kabad, K-A-B-E-D. Kabad means to be heavy or not working properly. Moses used this word in chapter 4, verse 10, when he told God that his speech and tongue were heavy. He couldn't speak well. Kabad occurs six times here, referring to Pharaoh's heart. Did you notice, as you underlined this phrase, that sometimes the text says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes Pharaoh's heart was hardened? I think the progression in time is significant. God warned Moses ahead of time in chapters 4 and 7 that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. God's the subject there. But in the actual account of the signs as they begin to take place, starting in chapter 7, verse 8, God is not the subject of those hardening verbs the first few times they're used. The early stages don't identify God as the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. In 722, Pharaoh's heart seemed to be hardened because the sorcerers could copy Moses, turning water to blood. Three times, after the frogs, the flies, and the hail, Pharaoh backed out of an agreement with Moses. Each of those times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart as soon as the pressure was off. It's not until the end of the fifth sign, the cattle plague, that God is specifically declared as the subject, the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. After that, references to God hardening Pharaoh's heart are more common. So it seems that Pharaoh chose a direction and then God kept him on that course so that Pharaoh didn't back down under pressure. Listen to these two commentators, and these quotes are on the slides, so you can stop and read them. From Desmond Alexander, the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart is not about making him act contrary to his own will. Rather, it is the reverse. It is about giving him the boldness or courage to do what he most desires. And from Coover Cox, Exodus gives no sign that Pharaoh longed to submit to Yahweh as his sovereign and was prevented from doing so. His attitude of rebellion is confirmed, so to speak, and repeatedly displayed rather than hidden or compromised for the sake of expediency. 
So they both say that Pharaoh chose a course and God held him to it in the midst of great external pressure. Didn't Pharaoh deserve more than that from God, more of a chance? In Exodus 9.15, you'll hear God saying to Pharaoh, By now I could have wiped out you and your people with a plague. In other words, Pharaoh had already earned a death sentence. God owed Pharaoh nothing else. We tend to think that we all deserve mercy from God. Actually, that's not biblical. In ourselves, we all deserve condemnation, and God is righteous when he condemns. To think otherwise is to minimize our sin and minimize God's holiness. You had two other passages to look at in your workbook to help clarify this. The passage in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 36, describes how, apart from God's work, we all have hearts hardened in sin and disobedience to God. Pharaoh was rightly under God's condemnation even before he ignored Moses. God owed him nothing but judgment. We were all once on the same course as Pharaoh, and we deserved condemnation just as he did. God's holiness and justice demand it. The workbook asked how it felt to identify with Pharaoh deserving God's wrath. Probably most of us have never truly felt condemned. Convicted maybe, but that absolute condemnation that we deserved? Not usually. I came to the Lord in high school through the witness of a friend. She talked to me about God for months and I brushed it off. But one day as she was talking, it was like the Holy Spirit pulled back a curtain in my mind and showed me my true condition. In that moment, I knew with total certainty that I was headed for hell and that nothing I could do would stop that. It was horrifying. Suddenly, I was in a desperate panic, begging her to tell me how to be saved. It was such an abrupt switch that she thought I was making fun of her, and she wouldn't even answer me. Not a good witnessing technique. I will never forget that moment of searing clarity about the fate that I deserved. I didn't deserve the mercy that rescued me. The next passage you looked at, Romans 9, 14 to 18, quotes Exodus 9, 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's God speaking. In other words, God made sure that Pharaoh's stubbornness continued so that even more of God's power and glory would be displayed as the plagues dragged on and this at the cost of the whole Egyptian nation. One commentator on Romans says, Anyone who knows the Exodus story would understand that God raised up Pharaoh with a negative rather than a positive purpose. By resisting God's will to deliver his people from bondage, Pharaoh caused that deliverance to assume a more spectacular aspect than it would have otherwise. So we ask, was it fair of God to use Pharaoh that way? Paul argues that it was. God is always totally just. The mercy and grace that he pours out to us are extras given by his choice. 
but God always retains his sovereign position. Our world is a stage to display God's glory, and we all participate. We want to have total control of our own scripts, don't we? And to be the star. The thought that God deals with us as he chooses and uses us for his purposes can be upsetting. But throughout scripture, God claims that right. Unless you know God deeply enough to trust him fully, his sovereign claims on you can be fearful rather than reassuring. But if you truly know who God is, his sovereignty is actually a comfort. So the Ezekiel passage reinforces that in ourselves, people are hardened to God and deserving condemnation. That's where Pharaoh was from the very beginning. Romans declares that God will deal with persons as he chooses in order to display his glory and character, and he will be totally just. Now, is any one of us really deep down comfortable with all of this? I doubt it. Being uncomfortable isn't always a bad sign. If your biblical study never makes you uncomfortable, maybe true conviction and transformation aren't happening. If nothing in your study ever rocks your boat, you may still be stuck at the beach and you need to push off into deeper water. But we need to identify where our tension is coming from. On these issues, we're dealing with at least two different sources of tension. One tension is always present when finite humans try to understand and relate to an infinitely complex God. How can we fit together God's love, his desire to redeem sinners, and his gift of mercy to us on one side, and on the other side, his absolute holiness, his righteous justice, his condemnation of sinners? Or how about our personal responsibility and choices against the backdrop of his sovereignty? And in an earlier lesson, we talked about the tension between God being exalted on high, majestic, yet dealing so intimately, personally, tenderly with us. How do you fit these things together? We often see two sides that seem to us to be somewhat contradictory, but that somehow meet in the middle in a cloud of mystery. As finite humans, we can't fully wrap our minds around God's character and actions. We want it to be perfectly systematized, clearly lined out for our understanding and we feel tension because it's just not that way. Are we willing to live in that tension rather than sliding to one extreme or the other? Because moving to one extreme is often easier. We want to pick one side and ignore any evidence to the contrary. Ever been tempted to do that? You focus on God's tender, loving care for you and neglect to worship him as sovereign Lord of the universe. Or you emphasize how he reaches out in love toward humanity and his condemnation of sinners is ignored. If you think you have these things perfectly, completely solved, you may have moved out of the mystery and landed on one of the extremes. Be careful. The difficulty is not always in getting our theology right, but in properly balancing our right theology. I'll say that again. The difficulty is not always in getting our theology right, but in properly balancing our right theology. 
heresy, teaching that's outright wrong, is easier to recognize than being unbalanced and not holding truths in proper perspective. So there's another issue at play here. And you're probably thinking, no more issues, but hang in there. <laughs> We're almost done. Our problems don't come only from our human finiteness. They also come from our human sinfulness and resistance to God's ways, our hard hearts that don't believe God. Sometimes it's not that we can't understand how God works, but we just plain don't like or don't believe what we see. We could spend hours talking about that, but I just want to highlight for here the resistance that we absorb from the culture around us, because that's where we get hard in this hit hard in this lesson. Every culture has its own tendencies. Right now, our culture is awash in humanism. We raise ourselves up, we minimize our sinfulness, and minimize God's holiness. We talk about a sin problem, sort of like having a car problem. It needs fixed, and Jesus fixes it for us, like having a good mechanic. No recognition of how deeply our sin is an affront to an infinitely holy God and requires condemnation and judgment. We might think of people as basically good, deserving love and mercy from God, not as subjects deserving the wrath of a righteous God. Sound familiar? It's not just secular culture. Our contemporary church culture often pulls us in that direction too. So much that Christians begin to question whether a God of love could actually condemn anyone. And certainly, eternal punishment is absolutely unthinkable. On another front, our culture is huge on personal autonomy and self-determination. No one decides for me what I do with my body, my gender, my roles in life. I can create my own truth, my own life, my own reality, my own kingdom, submission to a sovereign creator God who has the absolute right to dictate to me, that's utterly abhorrent. Can you tell when these ideas are creeping into your mind? How do you recognize where secular culture and even church culture are pulling you away from a right balance of biblical truth? Listen to Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Unless you actively, regularly, wholeheartedly submit your mind and heart to God's word and to his Holy Spirit for his work of transformation, you will be conformed to whatever is around you. You can't just coast. Biblical transformation is hard because sin is a serious, deep-rooted presence in our lives. We sometimes act like transformation is equivalent to a beauty makeover. We sit down and have our hair colored and styled and our makeup perfected. Jesus is making us beautiful. Well, he is. But in my experience, transformation is a lot more like surgery for cancer. It's painful, it's invasive, and God sometimes cuts out parts that we would really have liked to keep. So what's the verdict? 
We need to be immersed in Scripture, asking God by His Spirit to open His Word to us and show us where our hearts and minds need to be realigned with Him, conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal of our studies, that you would both be transformed here and be equipped to go out and engage God in His Word on your own. So take this challenge. Look back through the lesson and re-examine any places where you feel uncomfortable. If you feel tension, where is it coming from? Are you confident that God is greater than any evil that can come against you? Do you clearly see God's infinite holiness and how humans rightfully deserve condemnation in their sin? Do you recognize mercy as an awesome, undeserved gift from God and thank Him for it? Do you know God well enough to trust Him and submit to Him in His sovereignty? Can you trust God's revealed truth even when you don't totally understand how it all fits together? Maybe you need to do more studying on one of those questions. And in addition to our personal study, we need to live in community with one another, teaching, challenging, sharpening each other as we pursue Christ. That's another thing we want to do here. We won't always come to the same conclusions from Scripture, but where you disagree, make sure that you do it biblically on the basis of the text, not just because you don't like something or don't feel comfortable with it. And consider the whole tenor of Scripture, not just a few favorite verses. So keep digging in, ladies. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you that you are the awesome, holy, supreme God. And yet you love us. You have rescued us. You are transforming us. I pray that you would show us the places where we are resisting you, not believing you, not trusting you. So many places in our hearts, Lord, that have yet to be conformed to the image of your Son. And thank you that we can trust you to do that as we keep coming to you. So keep drawing us to you, showing us through your Spirit the things that we need to learn from your Word. And we thank you for your Son who makes all of this possible. And pray in his name. Amen.